what you would want to call it. Alright, so chapter 30 in the Confession of Faith, uh, point 7 and 8. Let me just read uh, uh, through point 7 and then give a diagnosis or an explanation of what is actually being treated there. Point seven. Were the receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death, the body and the blood of Christ, being then not corporately or carnally, but spiritually presented to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. This morning we hope to conclude chapter 30 of the Confession and we have been seeing right from the beginning the institution of the Lord's Table. This is covered in point one. The nature in point two, its celebration in, in point three, its proper celebration in point three, its perverse celebration from four to six, and today we'll look at particularly its recipients, those who are to receive the Lord's table. So when the confession says were the receivers in point seven, it is actually saying qualified receivers. And qualified receivers represent those, only those, who are born again. They are the ones who qualify to partake of the Lord's table. One has to be sure that they are Christian. That they have an active and living relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's important to say active and living because there are some people who profess to be Christians, but they don't have a living, active, abiding relationship with Christ. They are what we call Sunday Christians. People who only come to church on a Sunday but do not live out the Christian faith throughout the week. Nor are we actually talking about Easter Christians, quote-unquote. No Christmas Christians. We are talking about those who are walking in obedience. It is an active, it is a, it is a perpetual, it is ongoing, it is present and active. That you are a child of God, child of the living God. In other words, you are tending to the means of grace. You are sort of displaying the fruit of the Spirit, consistent with the teaching of Scripture. You are growing from glory to glory in grace and truth. 
You are repenting of known sins and unknown sins. You are loving the church more. You are loving the brethren more. You are walking in Christ. So really when partaking of the outward elements, when the Christian is partaking of the outward elements, the body and the blood, which are actually represented by bread and wine, when they do so uh, inwardly, they, 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 they really and indeed feed upon the body and drink the blood. So the, the confession is very quick to say actually that they are not to do so carnally or corporally. In other words, it's not supposed to be mystical. It's not supposed to be ritualistic. It's not supposed to be in a carnal sense, in a worldly sense. That's what the confession is saying. But it's supposed to be in a spiritual sense. You are actually feasting upon the body and drinking the blood in a spiritual sense. These are mysteries that non-believers do not understand or cannot fathom. And so, which also goes back to the point to, 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 to ask the question, why then do some churches allow non-believers to partake of the lost table? They don't know these mysteries. So in a spiritual sense, what is actually being said is that I am partaking in the crucifixion of Christ. Remember baptism? Remember how baptism is also closely linked to the Lord's table? You died with Christ and you were resurrected with Christ. So in a sense, you are partaking of the death and the resurrection of Christ. In, in, in a real sense, you are affirming to say, my Savior, who I am united with, I am partaking of his body that was broken and his blood that was shed. But really not the blood itself, because the blood of Christ. I mean, there are people who talk about, well, we have preserved the blood of Christ. There are drops of blood of Christ, which, you know, we picked up in the sand and, you know, all that stuff and, you know, stored it somewhere. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about it in a spiritual sense. That you, by faith, have believed that this is true. And you, that is why it's specifically for Christians, because only Christians have, have, have this great salvation that has been revealed to them and made real to them. So when we are doing the Lord's table, in a real sense, that is what we are doing. And that's what the confession teaches. And that's what we affirm. So, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. That is a very important point to highlight. The benefits of Christ's death. Do you know, dear friend, that there are benefits to Christ's death? 
Do you know that we are beneficiaries of Christ crucified? That the cross that is so offensive to the world, we are able to see all that rugged cross. On the old rugged cross, my salvation. And the benefits, welcome folks, well, the benefits of salvation is this. Number one, sorry, the benefits of, 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 of Christ crucified or the Christ death is salvation. That there is salvation in no one else and in no other act. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am. Number two, not only salvation, the benefits of Christ's death is assurance. Being assured that Christ's death and resurrection, no one can snatch you out of his hand. John 10 verse 28. I give them eternal life and no one can snatch them out of my hand. The benefits of Christ's death is that Christ's death gives us assurance of salvation. Because we cannot be assured of salvation in and of ourselves, Christ's death on the cross assures us of salvation. That salvation has been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. The person and work of Christ. What are, what are the benefits of Christ's death? Sanctification. Sanctification. Since such a sacrifice has been made, then you cannot continue living in sin. Shall we continue to live in sin so that grace may abound? By no means, says the Apostle Paul. Christ's death has freed us from the tyranny of sin. We are now free and at liberty to obey Christ freely, joyfully, fervently. We should be eager to, to, to actually obey Christ, obey his word. We are no longer, you know, bound or slaves to sin. We have been freed. What are the other benefits of Christ's death? Mortification. Not only sanctification, whereby God is doing the work of cleansing you and growing you and weeding out the sin in your life. There's also mortification, which is, which is a doctrine that is has been forgotten and neglected. The, the Puritans have got much to say about mortification. Mortification is putting to death the deeds of the flesh through the enabling of the Holy Spirit. In mortification, in sanctification, you are passive. In mortification, you are active. <laughs> you are actively killing sin so for example practically if someone says oh pastor i struggle with pornography so what am i supposed to do as a christian we have to say are you putting in measures to kill that sin have you deleted twitter facebook 
apps, Google Chrome. Oh, I struggle with lust. Oh, okay. You struggle with lust? What about when you're in a, in, a, in, a, in town or whatever, why don't you bounce your eyes? If someone is dressed immorally, you know that something can stumble you, why don't you bounce your eyes? If you struggle with pilfering or stealing money, why don't you put mechanisms in place to help you flee from sin of stealing? Say, no, no, I don't want to keep this money. Please. Struggle with lying. Why don't you get accountable? Uh, why don't you be accountable to other believers to help you with your lying? All right. The other benefits of Christ's death is fellowship with other believers, Christians, church, walking in obedience, freedom from sin. I've already mentioned that. So, the confession affirms what the Bible teaches. The Bible specifically says they are worthy recipients of the Lord's table. And worthy recipients are Christians. And when they partake of this, there is a sense inwardly that they actually do feast upon Christ's body and drink of his blood. That's the summary of point seven and the benefits of his death. But they still remain wine and bread. <laughs> Simply. Still remains what it is in essence. Okay, so that's the first part. The second part is unworthy recipients, which we see in point eight. So they are worthy recipients. And we have to be dogmatic about this, friends. It's not like, well, we're unloving or we want to be winsome. <laughs> because these are, these are God's things, you know? These are God's. We, we, it's not our own thing that we personalize and want to be loved by the world or people who are offended by such things. But we are to be, we are to be fearful in obedience to what the Bible says. The Bible, if you want to, uh, you know, study on the, conf on, on the Lord's table of worthy participants, I encourage you to read the, the institution of the Lord's table itself. Read Acts 2, uh, the, the, the foundation of the church. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul makes a clear distinction in the ground to say, they are believers, they are non-believers. If you take off this unworthily, you will be judged and chastened. Let's move on to point eight. All ignorant and ungodly persons, right, as they are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ, so are they unworthy of the Lord's table and cannot without great sin against them, while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries, or be admitted thereunto. Ye, whosoever shall receive unworthily, are guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, eating and drinking judgment to yourself. It becomes a poison, spiritual poison, 
crippling to the soul and evil to the body. Ignorant and ungodly. Who are ignorant and ungodly? First of all, we want to see what the word ignorant means. Ignorant simply means someone who is unaware of the word of God. Unaware of the gospel. So ignorant persons, uh, people like Neriah qualify for ignorant persons. She is ignorant of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. She has no sense that she needs salvation. Ungodly, those who are openly living in rebellion against God, unbelievers. Actually, no matter how good they seem, you know, there are people who say, well, I'm an unbeliever, but I'm morally upright. So I would qualify to partake of the Lord's table, but the confession and even the Bible, if we want to be consistent, they are ungodly because they don't have Christ. So ungodly is not so much so also in the actions like, you know, being homosexual, uh, you know, living to the passions of the world, but also people who are devoid of salvation. They are ungodly. They fall under the category of ungodly and ignorant. So what does, that, what does that mean to say they are unworthy? They are not qualified. They, they are in sin. They are not part of the new covenant family who have entered the new covenant. Here it is, through faith in Christ. That's how you enter new covenant. There is no other way to enter the new covenant. You do not enter the new covenant by simply stepping into the BRBC building uh, place and say, well, I'm in the new covenant. No, 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 no. The new covenant is through faith in Christ alone. You have believed in Christ. You have a living and active relationship. You're produ there's, there's a sense of reverence and awe. There's, there's fruit in your life. You're a Christian. You've got assurance. So non-believers are not fit to partake of the holy mysteries of God simply because they are what? They are foreign. They are foreigners. When you think about these xenophobic attacks on Zimbabweans, etc., etc., whatever it is, why, does, why are they attacking these people? It's because they are foreign. They are foreigners. In other words, they don't belong there. They belong here. When we talk about this sort of, you know, geographical location uh, where you belong. And so, admitting non-believers to partake of the holy mysteries of God is actually blasphemy. It's an insult to God. Now, granted, the pastors or even the members do not actually know really the state of the soul of the person. 
God is the one who knows whether somebody is really and absolutely a Christian. So we cannot really assert, sometimes in our ignorance or maybe in our lack of discernment or just the fact that we don't see some of these things, an unbeliever can partake of the Lord's table. I like what it says, or be admitted are they unto. So the church, just like the church has the responsibility to admit or remove someone from church membership, the church has the responsibility to admit or to ask that person not to take of the Lord's table, knowing that someone is living in sin, whether it's someone who's, who's a Christian, who's on church discipline, and is, in, is, in, is living in unrepentant sin, or someone who we know that this one is clearly not a Christian, we are to say, no. That's what the confession is teaching. I'll comment later on some of the things that, uh, you know, Sam Warden commented on this, on this particular thing. All right. In fact, let me, let, me, um, let me quote him. He says, The confession does not simply assert that it would be a great sin for such to partake of the Lord's Supper. It asserts that it will also be a great sin for such to be admitted. This statement implies that the church has the right and duty of guarding the Lord's table and refusing to admit those who are unworthy of the, ta of the table to it. The biblical basis for this is, first, our duty to prevent it if we can, others from sinning and incurring guilt, second, our duty not to fellowship or eat with openly ungodly if they profess to be Christians. So, hypocrites. We are not to eat with them. It's very serious. Not only the Lord's table, but also someone who's been excommunicated. I'm sure we'll have this discussion one, one day on excommunication. That it's so serious that if someone is excommunicated, we are to withhold fellowship with them. This means that we are not to talk to them. <laughs> unless it's for the sake of evangelizing or calling them to repentance. We are not to fellowship, eat with them, because they've just denied the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in their life. These are serious things, friends. Very, very serious. All right, let's go back to the statements on uh, paragraph 8 some things are very heavy to fathom in this Bible <laughs> right it says yes or to be admitted there unto ye whosoever shall receive unworthily are guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord 
eating and drinking judgment to themselves. So what does that mean? Being guilty of the body and the blood. Friends, in this, in its simplistic form, this just means that they are blasphemous of God. They are insulting the crucifixion. They are mocking it because they are participating. But they really do not know the meaning of it. And guess what? They are under judgment. The wrath of God presently rests upon them. And they must repent of their sin of unbelief in Christ. On this portion of taking the Lord's table unworthily, we can also come to members of churches who are in good standing, but maybe are on church discipline, or maybe they know that they are living in, a, in sin, really, actively. Of course, the Lord's table, partaking of the Lord's table unworthily is not the unforgivable sin. But it can cause a chastening of the Lord. Illness. Diseases. I've got a comment to make on this one, which I found to be interesting. In fact, let us turn to 1 Corinthians for this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, because this is where we get uh, this conviction. Right, from verse 29, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Full stop. In fact, let's continue to verse 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Period. So Paul is actually saying that if you are in sin, it is to your advantage that you do not partake. That's what he's saying. But also, what he's also saying is that some of you are weak and ill. And a question arose in my mind to say, this was just a hypothetical question. Does this mean that some people, some people's illnesses <laughs> and some people's deaths are actually caused by unworthily partaking of the Lord's table, but we do not know of it. It's, it's something that is just a mystery. Like to say maybe someone has got a, an illness that does not go away or dies under mysterious circumstances. Could it possibly be? Now, my conclusion is this. That I don't think it's the minister's duty to go around pointing out to people who are sick or who have relatives who have died or who, are who, are, who have died 
to say they've died because of unworthily partaking. It's not what the minister should be doing. Because this seems to be only a mystery that God knows. The duty of the minister thus then is to warn the dangers of take partaking of this ordinance in an unworthy manner. I want to read what Sam Waldron wrote. I, it was very interesting to me. Very mind-blowing, actually. Uh, just when he's concluding on this, on this thing. I'll just read from a, a small uh, quotation. Because this... Uh, this uh, this topic is very, uh, you know, important, and also we need to have the right theology of it. So this is what Sir Modron says: What is the judgment incurred? It is temporary sickness and death. Such verses as this have been fitted into the contemporary scheme of easy believism and carnal Christianity. They have been used to buttress its denial of the necessity of the perseverance of the saints. In this system, failure to perverse, but persevere results in physical death, not spiritual death. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, is usually used as a first witness. There is no reason to believe indeed. Good reason not to believe that the Christian may be chastened to death according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. So what Sam Waldron is saying is that, you know, if you are really a Christian, you will know when to partake and when not to. And there's no reason for God to chasten you to death. That's what he's saying. So I guess this use of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, two clear facts about this judgment bear witness. Firstly, this judgment is corporate and not merely individual. That's his argument. Indeed, church members died, first of all. Perhaps true Christians died. But the judgment spoken of here is a corporate judgment against corporate sin. Of course, individuals sinned and individuals were judged. The passage does not, however, assert that the individuals who sinned themselves died. It asserts they were judged. He gives an example. When David sinned, it was not David, but his son, his son who died. Remember? When David sinned with Bathsheba, who died? David sort of, you know, refused to eat food. When the, when the servants told him the son had died, he, he, the Bible says he went and ate and, you know, and he, he told them that, you know, the son cannot come to me, but I will go to, to eat. I will die one day. But the point is, the son is the one who died. So even so, it may be that those individuals who most grossly sinned lost wives. It may be the, the case. This is what Sam Waldron is saying. Husbands or children to death. 
there is no certainty that they themselves died. There is no assertion at all that true Christians died under divine chastisement. So, for example, if you think of Ananias and Sapphira, Uzzah, Nedabur and Abu, this is just to, you know, we're not making a statement, but you know, to get us thinking. Secondly, this judgment is chastening. The purpose of chastening is plainly stated in the passage. It is to save us from being condemned with the world. This raises a question, how does it do that? It does this by bringing us to repentance, Hebrews 12, 10 to 11. If an individual is chastened, it is that he might repent. When God chastens you, it means that it is that you may repent. Likewise, church discipline is restorative. When we put your body out to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, it is that you are restored, not that you are condemned. But at the same time, it is restrictive, restorative and restrictive. If an individual is chastened, is that, is, is that he may repent? If a church is chastened, it's so that the church might repent. If the church is corporately and God is chastening us, all of us at once, and just seems like, yeah, God is doing a work, uh, is that we might repent? So the implication of the passage is quite clearly that failure to repent under chastening results in being condemned with the world. Let me finish this quotation. This raises a final question. How does a person repent under God's chastening if it kills him first? If it does kill him in an impatient condition, he can only expect to be condemned with the world. Chastening, repentance, not being condemned with the world, these are inseparably linked in the divine purpose. A sort of chastening that kills its object before repentance is not scriptural. So many things to think about, friends. We have now come to the end of our study in chapter 30 of the Confession of Faith on the Lord's Table. So much implications, so much truth, so much to ponder upon. I'll give this time for us to discussion. We've got about uh, 